Hebrews 12, uh, let's kind of recap a little bit. We're almost done with this book. The author, just last week we looked at how he, he talked about discipline is the proof that God loves us. How do I know God loves me? He disciplines. How do you know God loves you? He disciplines you. And the author was talking about the temptations, the trials, the, just the painful moments they've experienced and said, listen, endure it as discipline. Not that it necessarily is discipline, but endure it as discipline. Learn from it. What is God trying to show you and teach you? What is he trying to show me and teach me? And here's the idea. These Hebrew believers, these Jewish now followers of Jesus, they're Jews who believe in Jesus as the Messiah. They've had to leave Judaism, leave their background, their family, their heritage. Many of them have been persecuted by even their own family. Many have been persecuted by the government. I mean, they're going through it. Through it. They feel like everything in life is crumbling around them. And the author is saying, listen, everything in life is shakable, but there is an unshakable kingdom. That even though things in life seem to be falling apart, you might be shaked, but you don't have to be shook. That your life might feel like it's crumbling, but it's not going to necessarily fall apart if it's built upon and in the kingdom of God. And so he really talks about this idea of, of uh, two mountains, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Mount Sinai, which had a great earthquake, great shaking, the law was given, but he says now there's another mountain, Mount Zion, where Jesus will rule and reign, a kingdom that will never be shaken. And between these two mountains is another mountain called Mount Calvary, uh, Golgotha. And we want to talk about this because I feel like in life, even right now, let's be honest, it feels like everything's crumbling or everything's falling apart or everything's shaking. Everything that once was doesn't seem to be anymore. And you're like, what is going on? And, and the author's saying, listen, you were never meant to make this world your home. Everything in this world is shakable, but there's a kingdom that will never shake. There's a kingdom that will never fall apart. And so we want to look at this because I feel like this is a very timely word. Honestly, when I was reading through this, I almost feel like it's a very prophetic word of God. Like, what is that in my life, in our church's life, that you're trying to remind us that we're putting hope in things that are shakable. We're putting hope in things that will fall apart. And we need to put our hope in the person and in the kingdom that will never shake, that will never fall apart. And so let's read. It's Hebrews chapter 12, uh, verse 18. We're going to read through verse 29. Um, so let's read this as a whole, and then we'll look at it more in depth. Hebrews 12, verse 18, it says, For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire, and no blackness and darkness and tempest, and, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast, this was the command, touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. So the author introduces this first mountain, the mountain that trembled, the mountain that was fear, that was uh, Mount, Mount Sinai, the, the Mount of the Law. Verse 22, now it says, but, but, listen, but you, you've not come to that mountain, but you've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. Listen to that. You are registered in heaven to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks of better things than that of Abel. Verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape 
uh, who refused him, who spoke on the earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he is promising yet once more, I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made so that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace. What a good word. Let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. The unshakable kingdom. An unshakable kingdom. This is what we're going to look at. This is what we're going to talk about. Because right now the kingdom of this world is very shakable. The kingdom of the laws is incredibly shakable. But the kingdom of God is an unshakable kingdom. And we want to talk about how to have an unshakable life and how to live for this unshakable kingdom. So let's just pray and invite the Lord to speak to us. And again, at home, if you would, just put away your phone, put away any distractions. I know it's hard maybe to focus. There's maybe a lot going on, but I just want to ask you to do your best to just be in the moment and say, God, what are some things in my life that I'm building upon that need to come crumbling down, that need to be, sh- that need to be shook? Um, God, what am I building my life upon that you want to remove so I can have the things that are unshakable remain? And we just want to invite the Lord to kind of identify that, and then we'll, we'll look at this and study this more in depth. So let's just do that. Father, I thank you so much for the fact that we can slow down, look to you, look to your word, that God, we're reminded that everything, everything in life that's not from you, that's not built upon you is shakable. That God, the things that we often live for or want or seek after, it's just vapor. Just here today and gone tomorrow. But Jesus, we look to you. We look to you, the one that, the one who does not change, the kingdom that is immovable, unshakable. How we look forward to this heavenly city, the, the new Jerusalem, what you just speak of here, God, as you were giving the, the people back in this day hope by looking forward. We ask that you would give us hope. That you give us hope by looking forward to this kingdom. That God, we would truly live for what is permanent. And God, maybe it is you want to shake things up in our life and we want to allow you to do that, but we also, God, want to build upon the right things. So Jesus, we ask that you'd move, you'd speak, that God, um, even right now at homes, in our lives, that we might think this applies to someone else and not us, but Lord, just you speak to us. We ask individually and collectively how we just want to hear from you, Jesus, in your beautiful name. Amen. You know, growing up in California as a kid, earthquakes were, were quite common. Now, it's not like every day, like people might think it is, but some of my earliest memories um, as a kid were during earthquakes. I don't know why, probably because when you're a little kid and your whole house starts shaking, it's terrifying. Um, but those are some of my first memories. I do remember, I, I think it was like 1994, I was, I was six. There's a pretty big earthquake outside of LA, like a six point something. And I just remember my, my whole house swaying, like I ran and went under the table. And I don't know why that we're, we're still taught that. Like, I really do wonder if that works. Like, hey, the whole house is going to collapse on you. This table will protect you. Maybe it will. Um, but it's kind of weird. I remember one other time I ran outside which I guess you're not supposed to do, but I remember I was like so terrified and you're like running kind of like an upside down. It feels so weird. Like the floor, the floor does feel like wavy or like it's moving. Um, I remember right before I moved out here, like 2009, I was at the gym and it's like a two-story building. And I remember I was doing something I don't very do often, like a leg press machine. And as I was moving the machine down, the whole thing, thing started shaking. I'm like, oh, I must be doing this wrong. And then you're watching like all these weights shake. And you're like, oh, 
there's an earthquake. And then I just like threw up the weight and like started like heading for the stairs. And I remember like, that's probably the worst place you could be as a gym with weights everywhere. Um, but the building was swaying. And it's funny because after that, no one cared. We all went back to working out. Like it's just, we were used to it. And it's funny because again, it's one of those things where some earthquakes were kind of fun, where you like feel that like vibration in the room. And you're like, oh, it's like a little ride. Others, <laughs> others were terrifying. Like others were like, it put the fear of God in you just as a kid or when you experience it, whatever, you're just going, I remember driving, thinking like underneath like a freeway pass, like I really don't want to be an earthquake right now. Like there's just those thoughts. Others were just terrifying. And here's the point. During an earthquake, it, it matters where you stand. Listen, it matters where you stand. It matters where you are. It, it matters what's around you. Are you in an old, broken down building? Are you near ele- like, you know, electrical cords that could possibly fall down? Like it matters where you are during an earthquake. And here's what the author's saying. He's using this imagery of an earthquake, of God shaking things up. And, and here's the point. It really does matter where you are. It matters where you are when God shakes things up. Like where, what's your foundation? What are you standing on? You know, the theme of Hebrews has really been Everything that we, we love about the Old Testament, or what we call it, everything you love about the law, the priesthood, Moses, Aaron, everything we love about it, it's just a shadow. It's just a shadow. All of those things point to the greater reality, and that's Jesus. That Jesus is that substance. He's that anchor. He's the one that's immovable, and we want to be tethered to him. And the point the author is trying to make over and over again is, listen, it might feel like your life is falling apart, and that's because it is. Because if it's built upon something other than Jesus, it's going to fall apart. If it's built upon your works, your traditions, your practice, if it's built upon something other than Jesus, it will be shaken and it will eventually fall apart. And so he kind of introduces this imagery of earthquakes and, sh- and shaking and he talks about two different mountains, one that shook violently and one that can never really shake, one that's immovable. And we want to look at this. We want to talk about this because, again, the whole point he's trying to bring up in, in church, and I need to hear this, we need to hear this, is what are we building our lives upon? And, and know this, if it's not Jesus, if it's not the gospel, it's movable, man. It, it's shakable. It could fall apart. It will fall apart. And he's saying build your lives on the thing and live for that, that city that will never fade away, that heavenly city that will never disappear, that will never be shook. And so we want to look at this and study this really in depth. And, and you're going to see these two different kind of mountains uh, describe Mount Sinai, where the law was given, and Mount Zion, where Jesus will rule and reign from. And he basically says, everyone, listen, these two mountains he, he brings up, and he's really brilliant. He's basically saying, these two mountains represent the two ways we approach God, the two ways we approach life. Because think about this. Um, one way is we, we approach it on our own efforts, our own work, what we can do, and one is what someone else has done for us. And so there's two real ways in which we approach God. And so this is what he's speaking into. So let's, let's re- look at this. I want to share the three points. We'll look at this more in depth. Here's the first point. We're going to see the shakable life, the shakable life. Number two, the unshakable life. And number three, the unshakable kingdom. The shakable life, the unshakable life, and the unshakable kingdom. One is represented by Sinai. One is represented by uh, Zion. And we're told really how to live, how we're to live in this unshakable kingdom. Because this unshakable kingdom, as strange as it sounds, is here and not yet. It's the already here and not yet here. And this is, he's going to talk to us about how to live in this unshakable kingdom. So let's read, it's again, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18, the first point, the shakable life represented by Sinai. Verse 18, he says, For you have not come 
to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore is too much for they could not endure what was commanded. And here's the command. And if so much, even as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And it was so terrifying that the sight uh, that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. The shakable life. Um, notice in verse 18, he says, you have not come. And verse 22, he's gonna say, you have come. And it's really interesting, this word, this word is used in Greek. It's where we get this word like proselytize. You have not been chained. Don't let Mount Sinai change you. Don't let Mount, Mount Sinai is not what saved you. That's not what did it, but Mount Zion. Don't let this mountain represent all of your life. You have not come to this mountain, which is so, uh, which is shakable. Here's the idea. There's a fundamental way in which people can try to approach God, which is either I'm going to approach God on my effort and my work, or you say God approached me and God paid the way. One approach is I want to feel good about myself. I want to keep the law. I want to do the law. And therefore, I, I'm able to approach God, but it, you really can't. What he's describing here, by the way, and if you want to write this down in your Bible, it's verse 18 to 21. He's describing something that took place in Exodus 19. In Exodus 19, Moses met with God. We're told that there was, you know, a great quake, that everyone was trembling, that it was just a, a terrifying moment, that it was a moment where the law was given, where God is saying, here's how you're to live. If you live by these things, you will live. And, and the idea was, this was a, a terrifying moment when man met with God. You know, the unmediated presence of God was just a terrifying or horrific thing. It was something, whenever someone encountered God, they felt like they were just going to fall apart. Like, I, I cannot live. There, there's something about when someone encounters God where everything changes. There's something about when you encounter God, you see who you really are. You see, you know, we tend to think very highly of ourselves. You know, if you talk to someone, hey, what do you do for a living? Uh, they, they tend to like kind of list their accomplishments maybe, or we're, we tend to kind of identify with, I was either the smart one in high school. I was the athletic one. I was the popular one. Or in college, I, I make this much money now, and I do this now. And we tend to identify in that way. But here's what happens. When you actually encounter God, all of those great things you think we've done, we've accomplished, when you truly encounter God, you go, this is nothing. This means nothing. Like a lot of things we've built our lives upon, when you encounter God, it feels like it's just terrifying. Things are falling apart. Think about this with Moses. It says Moses was terrified. I mean, Moses, for them, the, their great prophet. I mean, the guy that led them out of Egypt, the guy that led them out of slavery, the guy that every Jewish little boy and girl looked up to. It's going, when he met God, he was terrified. This great man we so respect, he had this sense of who am I before God? See, here's the thing. Um, when you encounter the true and living God, again, those, those, those prideful areas in our life that we, we so value, when you see them before God, you go, woe is me. Now, I want, I want you to think about this. Any person who ever counted God and counted him in the Bible had this moment of realization that they're not that great. And there's something really profound about that. Job, who was a very righteous guy, Job, who lived a really good life, even God said, have you considered Job? I mean, he's a pretty good dude. Like Job, who was just a really good guy, when he encountered God, listen to what he said in Job 42, verse five. Job says, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but God, now that my eye sees you, I abhor myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Job's like, I've heard about you, God. You know, like I've worshiped you. I served you. I used to offer sacrifices every morning to you. I've heard about you. But now that I've seen you, I loathe myself. I repent in dust and ashes. I'm not as good as I thought I was. 
it, it's crazy how the gospel does something incredibly humbling to us, where it, it basically says this, I'm not as good as I think I am, and Christ is way better than I think he is. The gospel does something to us where you go, wow, when I really encountered God, I saw even the good things that I do, even the good parts about me are still sinful in light of who God is. Even the good things I do that I might feel good about, my motives are off. I, I can do it from a place, though, that's still out of, out of a sinful state. You know, when Peter was with Jesus on the boat, and when they caught all the fish, and he realized in that moment who was in his boat, Peter says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He, he calls him Lord. He called him teacher at first in the boat. Then he goes, depart from me, O Lord. I'm a, I'm a sinful dude in, in light of who you are. It's when Isaiah saw God on the throne in the temple, in Isaiah 6. He says, I saw the Lord sitting on the temple high and lifted up. And then he sees this a beautiful moment where the, God's robe fills the temple and these angelic beings are flying around crying out, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And then Job, or Job, then Isaiah literally says, woe is me for I'm undone. For I'm a man of unclean lips. Literally what he's saying is, woe is me for I'm unraveling. Like Isaiah, a prophet, he thought he was a good dude. He, he was telling everyone in Isaiah chapter 1 through 5, what was you, what was you, what was you? He's going around to all these different nations, uh, pronouncing curses on them. That's what, that's what woe is. He's, he's pronouncing a curse. Woe is you. He's saying, cursed is you. And then he sees God and says, cursed is me. I, I'm undone. I'm unraveling. I've encountered God and I'm not as good as I thought I was. You know, there's something about when you meet God that you go, God, I am just dust. Like, who am I before you? And everyone needs that moment. Everyone needs that just incredibly humbling moment where you realize, God, apart from you, I'm nothing. You know, apart from you, I, you know, I remember for me in high school, um, this is the Lord used different things to wake me up. When I was a freshman, going to my freshman year, I was on the JV basketball team. And not that that's that big of a deal, but there's a freshman and sophomore basketball team, a JV team and a, and a varsity team. And I was 14. Uh, I was a freshman on the JV team. And there's juniors in high school, you know, they're 16, 17 years old. And that, that year, my freshman year, I won the MVP of the JV team. And like, I thought I was like it, man. I'm like, I was the MVP of JV, which is not even that great. But like, you know, you kind of get that pride and that ego. And I remember the following year, I played travel basketball. And like, here's little me, can like touch the rim. And there's these guys just dunking on me. And I'm like, woe is me, right? For I'm, I'm undone. Like when you encounter the real deal, you go, oh my goodness, I'm not as good as I thought I was. See, whenever someone's encountered God and, and they see compared to perfection, holiness, there's a side where you go, woe is me. Like your life is just shook. What my life was built upon was completely shook when you experience the real deal. Here, here's the thing. If you're living for money, if you're living for just a sexual pleasure or moment, if you're living for power and influence, you might attain that for a moment, but it will be gone. It will be taken. Your looks, your pride, your influence, your wealth, sooner or later, it's going to all be shook. Sooner or later, it's all going to disappear. I mean, we are in a moment I think as a country, as individuals, that we feel like everything is shaking around us. And then for those of us who are terrified, the question we should be asking ourselves is, are we building our lives upon filling that blank? Am I building my life upon what? Upon some politician, this side or that side? What am I building my life upon? Am I building my life upon what I thought things should be? If, if you feel like the, your world is crumbling, maybe in, in many ways God's like, that's a good thing. I'm trying to reveal to you that there are things that you're building your life upon that need to crumble, that need to fade away, 
that when you truly encounter the living God, you realize, I'm not as good as I thought I was. This, this is the true standard. This is truly what perfection and holiness looks like. And you, there's a sense of a great humbling. And the gospel is so unique because it doesn't just say, ha, stay humbled. Jesus and, and now fills you and gives you his righteousness. And so Josiah must decrease and Jesus increases in my life. So I don't live in this place of just woe is me. You live in this place of I'm broken. I'm a sinner, but Christ in me, man, the hope of glory. That the Bible says, when I see Jesus, I'll be like Jesus. This, this idea that, you know what, woe is me. I'm a sinner, absolutely, but I have Christ's righteousness in me. And I don't walk around with arrogance, but this confidence in the gospel. And there's this beautiful thing that can take place because of that. See, here's the thing. Verse 18 to 21 is saying the law that was given. This is man's attempt to try to be good before God. Look at what I've done. Look at who I am. But even when you stand before, even when you stand before God, Moses, as good as he was, realized, I'm terrified. It says he was terrified. There's just something about the unmediated presence of God. Church, here's the point. Spend some time with the Lord where you can have those moments. Spend that quiet time with God where God can just overwhelm you with his presence. Because there's something very beautiful about our God being a consuming fire and that fire just purifies us. That fire just kind of eats away at that just sin in our life. It just kind of, you know, when you think about the idea of gold being purified and the dross, that impurities of the gold comes to the top, and you think about the fire purifying that, that's what it's saying. It's saying, man, let God do that. You can approach God through Mount Sinai. You can. Jews, that's what he's saying. Hey, you can approach God through the law, through your works, but don't, don't. Don't be changed by that. There's another way to approach God. Don't approach God through the shakable way. Again, right now, examine, say, God, am, am I building my life upon anything that is just shakable, that can fade away, that can be taken away? Am I basing my identity off of who I am, what I've done, how much money I have in the bank, my security? What, what, is, what is that? And I think the Lord's trying to remind us in this moment, I think it's perfectly clear where we're at as a country and as a world, God's like everything shakable, except one thing, that is the kingdom of God. That maybe you feel so shook right now because you're living for things that are shakable. And so God shows us an unshakable life. That's number two. Let's look at that. The unshakable life. We see that really in verse 22 through another mount. Verse 22, he says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant and the blood of sprinkling that speaks of better things than that of Abel. It's really interesting, actually. The author here is like a, definitely a preacher because if you want to go back, you can't look at this. In verse 18 to 21, he, he names seven qualities that were kind of terrifying. And now he's going to name seven qualities that are like beautiful and awesome. And you can go back and compare the seven and count. You can do that. But he's just comparing and saying, look at this Mount, Mount Sinai, terrifying. Mount Zion though, beautiful, festival. We actually have, I think this is not the best translation. There's different translations that will say this festival of angels, this party that's going on, that this was an unshakable thing. I love, again, verse 18 and 22. You have not come, verse 18, verse 22, but you've come to this mountain. Don't come to Mount Sinai, the mountain of works, the mountain of what you can prove yourself. Come to Mount Zion, that the work is done, the work is completed, the work is finished because of another mountain, Mount Calvary. He's saying, come to this mountain, the eternal city, the heavenly city, the city that's unshakable. 
And, and really, it offers you and I this unshakable life. See, he's basically saying it's possible, please listen to this, it's possible to have an unshakable future. He's saying it's possible to even live in a world that's being shook and not be shakable yourself. It's possible to feel like everything around you is falling apart, but guess what? You're not Mount Sinai, you're Mount Zion. So church, hear, hear this for us, because this is really interesting too. I mean, you can do a study on Zion. It's like, like a hill, kind of mount, a mount or hill in Jerusalem, and you can see that, and it kind of became synonymous for Jerusalem itself. And then really the scriptures talk about this future Mount Zion, this heavenly Mount Zion, this eternal Mount Zion, or even known as Jerusalem or Zion itself, just that area. But it's really not just that physical area right now in Israel, but also this one day, this new mount, this new Jerusalem. And, the, and Revelation talks about this new Jerusalem that God is going to uh, make and bring down to earth. And, and here's the thing. He's saying you can either live for this eternal city, you can either live in this, from this mount, or you can still live by the Mount Sinai way which is let me prove myself, let me work hard enough, let me just show others that I'm a pretty good person, that I'm a, I, you should respect me and honor me because I have so much influence and money, power, whatever. And he says, don't live by that mount, live by this mount. That mount's shakable, this mount, mountain's unshakable. And this is really what he's pointing out. And look at the description here, if you would. When you read verse 22 through 24, this description is absolutely beauty, beautiful. To the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, one, you know, again, I point this out, but other translations will say this festival of angels. Think about it this way. Um, in the Old Testament, this mountain was so terrifying that people were, even when Moses came down the mountain, they're like, Moses, cover your face. The glory of God's too much for us. It's terrifying us. There's this fear in Mount Sinai, but this one is more like a party. This is like where the angels are, are gathered together celebrating C.S. Lewis in many of his books will talk about something called like this, the dance, the great dance. And the idea is, listen, all of creation celebrating, all of creation worships God except man. All of creation knows how to give honor and glory to God. And, and man can do that. Man is invited to join the dance, but so often we don't want to. You know, we're the kid who's just like outside the party. I don't want to dance. I don't want to have fun. We're always cynical. We're the older brother where the younger brother comes home and there's a giant festival and feast in Luke 15. The prodigals come home and we can be like that. I'm not going to dance. I'm not going to celebrate. And God's inviting us to this, this dance, this festival, this party. You know, again, Romans 14, 17 says it this way. The kingdom of God, it's not meat nor drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is described as a place of joy in the Holy Spirit that there should be this like crazy amount of celebration and joy that no one should celebrate better than the church. No one should re recognize that, hey, you know what? The world has fallen apart, but our world will never fall apart. You know, it's interesting. Augustine, who was a very famous theologian based out of like Africa, this guy who just loved the Lord, he, he wrote about something that took place around 410, I believe, when Rome was just kind of being taken over by pagans. And Rome is falling, and the empire, the Roman Empire is coming to the end, to an end in that fourth century. Christians were beginning to panic and freak out, going, oh my gosh, our known world is ending. I mean, Rome is ending. The pagans are taking over. And he's going, why are you worrying? We were never living for this world to begin with. And he wrote a book called The City of God, and he's going, well, what are you talking about? This was never our home. This was never our city to begin with. You might feel like the pagans are taking over, but this was never our home to begin with. They could never truly take over. What could they even take over? There's an eternal city that will last forever. And, and this just fits so well when I, when I read that, when I think of that, it just fits so well for the moment we're in. We feel like, oh my gosh, everything's being taken over. And it's like, this was never our home to begin with. What does he say? He says, you're registered in heaven. Like your seat is saved in heaven. I love that thought. Ephesians 2, 6 says, you are seated in the heavenly places. It actually says it in the present tense. It says right now, 
your security is, is so secure <laughs> that you are seated in heaven, that you can have that kind of confidence, that you are registered in heaven, that it's there. It's your, that's what you're building your identity upon. See, it's this unshakable life because you have an unshakable identity. We're registered in heaven. Think of it this way. You know the story. It's a very well-known story. I've mentioned it before. In, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus, which is so cool, he gave the disciples, you know, 70 disciples, two by two, the authority to cast out demons, to heal, to preach the gospel. I mean, imagine that. And I, I love that thought. I've been thinking about that a lot recently, how Jesus has the authority to kind of unlock things. I just think about he unlocked within these group of men I'm going to unlock within you and give you authority to cast out demons, to heal, to preach the gospel, watch an amazing work. And the story goes, and the the people get saved, and they cast out demons, and in Luke chapter 10, they come back to Jesus, verse 20, and they're freaking out, going, Jesus, we cast out demons in your name, we heal people, we preach the gospel. It was unbelievable. And what does Jesus say in Luke 10, 20? He says, do not rejoice in this. Do not rejoice uh, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. I mean, what a, it sounds like such a downer kind of actually. Like think about that. Like they're just pumped. Like Jesus, we did this and this and this. And he's like, stop rejoicing in that. Rejoice that your name's in heaven. Like you're rejoicing in the wrong things. Why is that? What is, what is he getting at? There might come a day when you might not be able to cast out that demon. We're not able to, to see the salvations take place. Actually, we know later the disciples weren't able to cast out a demon. They go, Jesus, why can't we cast out this demon? And he says, well, without prayer and fasting. But the point is there came a day where their identity couldn't be based off that. Think about it. So often we can come to Jesus and we maybe have our identity based off of something, a good thing, not even a bad thing. And we're excited. But that thing that we were basing our identity off of is not what our identity should be based off of. It will end. We won't always be known as that. I'm so-and-so the person with power. I'm so-and-so the person with influence. I'm so-and-so the person of, and he's saying, don't build your identity off that. Your identity is that your names are in heaven. Here the author says you're registered in heaven. Like we should rejoice in that. And, and please hear this right now, church. Thank Jesus that if you believe in him and you've been born again, your name's written in heaven. Like that's what we rejoice in. What do we sing? What do we celebrate? What do we sing? We're saying, Jesus, thank you. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Jesus, I celebrate the fact that my name is now registered in heaven, that my name is literally written in the Lamb's book of life, that you've saved my place, I'm seated in the heavenly places. My identity is not based in this mount, in this world, in Mount Sinai, in the law, in the works. My identity is based in Mount Zion, this eternal city that will never fade away. This is what he's saying, build your life upon this. So again, church, do we get this sense of belonging from what? From what we have done? from what we think we are? Do we get our identity from, and you fill in that blank. When I talk to people, they can get their identity from what family they come from, how successful they are or are not. They can either be having a fake shallow pride or they can have this woe is me victim kind of mentality and they're basing their identity on maybe two extremes and the whole idea is base your identity on something that can never be taken away. That your name is written in heaven that Jesus is the one. We don't, we don't boast in our works. We boast in the finished work of the cross. I mean, this is literally what the author is getting at. I just want to read verse 24. Uh, he, he goes on to say, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant and, and the sprinkling that speaks of better things than that of Abel. He goes, you know, rejoice in the fact that it's Jesus, man. Jesus offered us this better covenant. So here's the idea, and please listen to this. He says, there's Mount Sinai, we approach God by who we are, our works, our life, or you approach God by Mount Zion, this eternal city that does not fade away. How do we get to this mountain? Well, there, again, because there was Mount Calvary. 
Because of Jesus and what he did for us on that mount, on that hill, on that cross, you and I now have access to Mount Zion. It is actually really, really interesting. It's kind of eerie. Mount Sinai and the, the death and crucifixion of Jesus was very similar. Like when you read about earthquakes, there was complete darkness over the earth. The rocks split. Matthew 27 says graves are opened. Like it was a terrifying thing that took place. When you look at Mount Sinai and how much fear there was and you go, wait, there's darkness over the earth for three hours when Jesus was on the cross and there was earthquakes happening and there was shaking. It's like, what took place at Mount Sinai? The law was given. Well, the law was never fulfilled. We've, we didn't fulfill the law. We fell short of the law. Jesus fulfilled the law and yet he took the wrath of God that he took what Mount Sinai had, that scary, terrifying day, he took all of that wrath. The one who did complete the wall, the one who did finish Mount Sinai, he took all the pain and all the wrath. Why? So that you and I can have Mount Zion. So you and I can have an eternal city. So you and I can have a city that never fades away. I mean, it, it is unbelievable to think that Jesus took everything that we couldn't complete with the law. Jesus took the pain and the wrath of that so that you and I could now enter into Mount Zion. Jesus, he's the mediator of that new covenant. I, I love the last phrase that his blood speaks of better things than that, than that of Abel. You're like, what does that even mean? Um, in Genesis 4, when, when Cain murdered his brother Abel, God said to Cain, Cain, your brother's blood cries out to me. What does that even mean? He's saying, Cain, your, your brother's blood is spilled, and it's saying to me that there needs to be justice, there needs to be judgment. The blood is crying out to me that something unjust and sinful took place. And Jesus' blood speaks of something else. Jesus' blood speaks of mercy, of forgiveness, that judgment has taken place, that judgment has been dealt, that Jesus' blood speaks of it is finished, it is done. One blood, Abel's blood spoke of we need justice. Well, Jesus' blood speaks of justice has been met. His blood is a better blood. It speaks better things. And because why? We have this unshakable life offered to us in the person of Jesus. Again, without getting too sidetracked from the main point, he's basically been saying throughout this whole book, you've been building your lives upon the wrong things. All of that was a shadow to point us to Christ. All of that was pr really point us to the greater mountain. All of that was point us to the greater Moses, the greater, uh, the greater servant, the greater Melchizedek, the greater fill in the blank. It's all been pointing to Jesus. So if your life is built on anything other than Jesus and the gospel, it's going to crumble. It's going to fall apart. If you're not building your life that, on the fact that your name is registered in heaven, you're building your life on the wrong thing. And please hear this, because even Christians can fall into this trap. We can, un we can think like, well, I'm building my life upon Jesus, but then you feel like everything's falling apart. Why do you feel that way? Because maybe, again, you might know the right things, but do you give your life over to the right things? You might believe the right things in your mind, but is your life truly reflecting that? Are you building upon the gospel? Are you building your life upon Jesus, on intimacy with him, on knowing him, on enjoying him, on becoming like him and transformed by him, on doing what Jesus did because of what he's already done in you? And the point is, Christians can even fall into the trap of building their lives on the wrong things. And church, do not miss it. I really do think in this moment, in this, in this time that we're in, God is saying, build your life upon me, that one thing that's unshakable. I'm offering you a better covenant. I offer you Mount Zion because of Mount Calvary. Don't, don't try to go back to Mount Sinai. Stop. You can never do it. You can never work your way to God. It's already been paid. His blood speaks of better things and Mount Zion's available. And that brings us to number three, and that is the unshakable kingdom and how we're to live in that kingdom. Look at verse 25. He says, see that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke uh, on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven whose voice then shook the earth, 
But now he has promised saying, yet once more, I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are being uh, made. That the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Here's what he says. Do not, listen, do not refuse him who speaks. The book of Hebrews began with God, who at various times and in various ways spoke to the prophets of old, but now in these last days speaks to us through his son. And he says, do not refuse him who speaks. Do not refuse him. Do not make excuses. Stop making excuses why you can't believe in Jesus. Stop making excuses why you can't come to Jesus. It's the parable of the wedding feast that Jesus gave. And he said, uh, there is, he gave a parable where he says, there's a man, a wealthy man, really a king who, who threw this wedding feast for his son. And he invited, every, he invited the wealthy people, the people to it. But they said, no, I can't come to the feast. I, I have a new wife. I'm newly married. I can't come to the feast. I got some new oxen I need to take care of. I can't come to the feast. I have this field. And, and it's equivalent today where God is saying, I invite you, come in. You're saying, God, I can't come to you. I have these, new, I have these things I want to try out first in life. God, I can't come to you. There's some experiences I want to have first. And they're making excuses. So God says, okay, we'll go, to the, we'll go to the poor. We'll invite the homeless. We'll invite, we'll invite who people might view as rejected to come to this feast. He's saying, because you know why? You, you made excuses. I think here's, here's the idea for us. He says, don't refuse him who speaks. Don't make excuses. Don't say, but God, I want to experience this, this, and this, and then I'll believe in you. Once I kind of have these crazy moments in life and live it up, then I'll believe in you. Do not refuse him who speaks. I mean, there's constantly these warnings throughout Hebrews. He's saying, Everything that can be shaken will be shaken until only the things that can't be shaken remain. Everything that can be shaken, it will be shaken until only the things that cannot be shaken remain. Until only the things that matter remain. And that's what verse 27 is clearly getting at. He says, yet once more, it indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of the things that are made that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. God's like, it's going to last. The, the kingdom of God is going to last, but everything else is not. There is this like poem or quote I used to hear a lot as a kid quoted by our pastor. And um, maybe I've mentioned this, maybe you've heard this, but I do, the poem kind of the last phrase goes, you only have one life, which will soon be passed and only what's done for Christ will last. And just that idea sticks with me of, man, we only have one life. It's going to soon be over. It's going to soon be in the past tense, but only what's done for Christ will last. And he's saying, are you building your life upon those unshakable things? The things that cannot be shaken. You know, Jesus, I think, gave one of the clearest warnings of this in Luke 12, talking about everything will be shaken. Ultimately, death, death, listen, death is that final shaking. In Luke 12, Jesus gave this parable of a very wealthy guy. He had so much wealth. He goes, listen, the barns that I carry all of my, you know, proceeds from basically everything I have. I need to build bigger barns. I need to build bigger barns. I mean, imagine having so much money, like Bank of America can't keep your money. You're like, I need a bigger bank. Bank of America is too small. I need to build a bigger bank. I mean, that's the kind of wealth. And he goes, you fool. Do you not know that your life will be taken from you tonight? The idea is great. You saved and saved, or, or look at you have all this power, all this money, all this influence, whatever. And you built bigger barns, but just to lose your life. You, you built a bigger reputation, bigger bank account. You have more notches on your belt from things you've done. Just to what? Lose it all? Jesus asked a, a phenomenal question. He said, what would it profit a man if he gains the whole rule, world, but he loses his soul? Who cares if you gain everything you've ever wanted and dreamed of, but in the process you lose your soul? What does it matter? Sooner or later, things are going to be shake, shaken up. And only what's done for Christ, only what's built upon those eternal things, he says, will last. 
we spend so much time, I, I spend so much time on things that are temporary. And yet, how much time as followers of Jesus do we spend time on things that will never fade away? Parents all say invest in your kids, invest in your kids spiritually, pray for them, love them, serve them. Listen, invest in the gospel. Get the gospel out to your neighbors, your friends, your family. Invest in the church. Invest in people's lives. Invest in things that will not fade away. C- can we do things even here that might, not, might be shakable things? Absolutely. Our hope and our focus, though, is to say, you know what? We want to invest into things that will be unshakable. That the reason why we do certain ministries or programs or the reason why we want to have these things is ultimately so we can invest in the kingdom of God. Ultimately so we can invest in people. Ultimately so we can invest in things that will never fade away. Again, here's the ending and conclusion of what the author is saying. Verse 28, when he talks about the unshakable kingdom, he says, now here's how you live in it. Ready? Verse 28. He says, therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace. Oh my gosh, we need this. Let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear for our God is a consuming fire. How do we live in this kingdom? Listen, I think some people maybe get focused. We need to serve God with reverence and godly fear. We'll talk about that. But the grace is what motivates us to serve with reverence and godly fear. He goes, you need grace. Let us have grace. Since we're receiving a kingdom that can't be shaken, we need, we need grace. We need grace for others as they're growing and maturing in their process and their discipleship with Christ, that maybe certain things will not just immediately disappear, that we need to work with them and love them and serve them, that for there to be growth. We need grace for us. We need grace for each other. We need grace. So why? So we can serve. So grace can be the great motivator for why we serve with reverence and godly fear. Why do people serve? There's many reasons, but the real motivation, he says, let it be grace that motivates you. Let it be the love of Christ that motivates you that we can serve with reverence and godly fear. One translation says that we can serve with worship. So we can serve with worship. I love the definition, one of my favorite definitions of worship is it's awe mixed with intimacy. It's the sense of awe. God, you are so good. Who am I? And yet it's meant with intimacy. I can know you, yet I feel distant from you, yet you are God. And here, here I am on earth. I'll let my words be few. Like there's that sense of fear, but there's also that intimacy that I can know you and be known by you. And there's that worship that can have that beautiful blend of both. And, and notice he just ends with this phrase, our God is a consuming fire. Now, now here's the thing. Sometimes we can hear that and say that, oh, that's Old Testament. But he also applies it to like the New Testament for this new mountain saying, God's consuming fire will have that purifying effect in our lives. God being a consuming fire, it, it's not necessarily that we're consumed ashes. Could mean that from judgment. But it could also mean that God just purifying that draws the sin in our life that God is consuming those toxic behaviors and attitudes and things, that God is trying to consume that and make us more like Jesus in the process. I love how N.T. Wright, an author, puts it. He says, listen, at the center of the contrast between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion, in fact, is the contrast between a holiness which is terrifying and unapproachable and a holiness which is welcoming, cleansing, and healing. You see, Mount Sinai can never make true holiness. It can never make someone truly holy. Mount Sinai can never truly purify. It can tell you what to do, but it doesn't give you the power to do it. The gospel, on the other hand, gives you the power to do it. The gospel, on the other hand, makes holiness not be this outward focus, this outward change, which we can do. I can do as a parent. We can, I can do as a pastor. It's like, you need to change, but the heart's not changed. That's, that's the law. Mount Zion, it can change the inward man. 
when you encounter God, when you encounter Mount Calvary, when you encounter what he truly did for you, it can produce this inward change that leads to outward holiness, that leads to inward holiness. It's just so different. He goes, they're both holy, but one is outward, one is more cleansing and purifying and more inward. And, and listen, this, this phrase, our God is a consuming fire, it's one of those things where you go, okay, God, what do you want to consume out of my life? What do you want to take away? What's maybe in the way? What's sinful? What's selfish? What's hurting me, hurting others around me? What behaviors am I not seeing that are detrimental to the gospel? What am I posting on social media that is a bad reflection of the gospel? What am I doing, God, in my life that might not reflect you, but might reflect my personal bent? And God's just saying, I want you to consume that. Give it up. Offer it to me. I really do think that um, before, obviously, we're Americans, we're followers of Jesus. Before anything else, fill in the blank, we're followers of Jesus. My identity is a follower of Jesus. And I'm thankful that God has placed me where I'm at, when I'm at. I want to have that spirit of thankfulness and gratefulness. Is it perfect? No, but I want to have that spirit of thankfulness and gratefulness. But first and foremost, man, I'm a citizen of heaven. My name is registered in heaven, not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus has done. I want to boast in him and in the cross, and I want that to be my identity. And, And I really think it's like, man, let God consume anything else that's secondary. Anything else like where we want to hit send, we want to you know, share that thing, or we want to whatever, and God's like, you know what, bull, that reflect my goodness, my grace. Let us have grace. Church, what a great word of just for us. Let us have grace that we may serve with reverence and godly fear. Let us have grace for one another. When someone does share that thing or does post that thing or does say that thing, hey, let us have grace. Let us realize that we're still a work in progress. That probably wasn't the best decision or whatever, but let us have grace. I just pray that on, on, on every extreme there'll be grace that there'll be a, a way in which we approach this with how would Christ approach this? That yes, we can speak truth, we can speak love and truth, that we can do both and we want to do it well. And so here's the thing for us today. Um, everything that's shakable will be shaken and only the unshakable things will remain. And really what he says, that's Jesus, that's the new covenant, that's the gospel, that's Mount Zion. Hey, that's the kingdom of God that's coming. And you know what? We, it's the already not yet. It's almost here. Revelation talks about this kingdom, this new Jerusalem, this heavenly city, you know, and and uh, John, the author, ends the book of Revelation by saying, God, come quickly, come quickly. And you know what? There's a side of this where it's like, yes, Lord, come quickly. It's the kingdom of God that's not here, but it's already here. That we're to be praying for your kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. That we're to be bringers of the kingdom. That we're to live in the kingdom. That Jesus said the kingdom of God is here. That it's here. That it's one of those things that we're here to usher in and bring in. And we can live this way now. We, we already know Jesus is on the throne. We already know he's ruling and reigning. Let's live like that now. We don't have to just wait till he's physically here, which we will see that perfectly established, yes, but we can live like that now. Our God is a consuming fire and say, God, what is it you want to consume? What is not of you? What is a shakable thing in my life? Remove it so I can build my life on those unshakable things. Amen? Let's build our lives on the unshakable kingdom because of the unshakable person, Jesus Christ. Let's pray and just close at our time. Father, we thank you that we truly live in and for a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That we feel like things are being shaken, and they are. But Lord, in reality, our true kingdom can never be shaken. That Jesus, we look to you. We, we need you. We ask that you would just um, establish your kingdom in our lives. That Jesus, we would be followers of you first. Our identity would be on the fact that we're na- our names are registered in heaven that that would come first and foremost, that we would have an identity based on you and on the gospel. And Lord, just do that within us. Make us a people of love and of grace. I just do ask that that is true, that let us have grace. We want to serve with reverence and godly fear. Absolutely, God. Let it be just spurred on by your love, by your grace for us. 
Jesus, we thank you. How I need you, how I need this grace, how I need mercy, so help me show mercy. God, we just look to you now. We thank you now, and we ask that you would just, um, even as we move forward into our week, groups, conversations that can come from this, Lord, we ask that you would just lead and guide this time in your wonderful name. Amen.